Well, I hope you're looking to the Lamb. I kind of like that song. What about you? Well, there's three of us that do, maybe to catch on a little bit later. I want to welcome you to worship, and I want to welcome my friend Jeff that's joining us online from home. I know you're there, so thank you. I want you to take your Bibles. Let's turn together and go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We are continuing our series today. Let's talk about it, and we want to have some conversations, and some of these conversations are tough. Uh, they're heavy. But these are conversations that God's Word helps us understand and navigate through. Today in the Let's Talk About It series, we're talking about sexual attraction. And as we talk about sexual attraction, particularly same-sex attraction, and what does God's Word say about it, uh, some people just squirm a little bit and ask the question often, why do we need to talk about these kind of topics in church? Well, to be quite frank, if the church refuses to disciple God's people in truth, the world around us is already busy discipling people in lies. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we don't have an option. We cannot be silent, and we must do better about understanding what biblical truth is. We must be as straightforward about what God says as the world is straightforward about what it says. And it's in your face these days. By God's grace, by the help of God's Holy Spirit, we will at least begin some fruitful conversations in this six weeks. And I say begin because they will continue even after our life group and sermon series ends. And we want to invite you to have conversations and come alongside and equip you in those conversations. Last week, we began by talking about mental health through the lens of Scripture. And if you missed, I want to invite you to go to our website, lbcchelsea.com, and all of these messages will be archived there, and you can uh, log in and watch the sermons. But also, there's going to be a resource page that is there to help you with further articles or videos or information about these topics. I want to just go over some things up front. I always like to do this with these kind of topics and, and get us on the same page in our thought process, hopefully. I want us to understand as the body of Christ, as the church, we are not the good people who have it all together trying to tell the bad people how to be good. That is not our mission. That is not who we are. In fact, rather, we're all guilty sinners who have been saved by grace through faith and the only good person who has ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. And so we have no reason or right or platform to stand in any self-righteousness or any condemning judgmental spirit toward others. We must stand in truth and we must speak that truth in love with conviction, but we must do it with compassion. Sexual attraction is our topic today, and I want you to understand it is a gift from God. It is a God-given gift that causes us to have desire toward other humans, toward another God-given gift, and that is sexual expression and union through marriage. This kind of attraction is only sinful when it leads toward inappropriate forms of sexual expression. 
And there are many inappropriate forms of sexual expression in the world today. <clears throat> yes, homosexuality is part of that, but so is adultery. So is lust, emotional fantasy, fornication, which is a big word that talks about all kinds of sexual immorality. So even though we lean in a conversation towards sexual attraction that's prominent, we need to know more about, it is a vast topic. The only avenue that God has given us that is divinely sanctioned for sexual union to take place is marriage that God has defined. The covenant of one man, one woman together for a lifetime. For this reason, we are told to flee all sexual immorality. And that includes all, even homosexual sin. Through the years, we as the church have probably not done as good as we should have to address this type of topic. For one, it's easy to fall into that mindset of being condemning without compassion. God's Word says it. That settles it. Yes, that's an amen. That's what we believe. But if we're not careful, we come across to others and being condemning and judgmental only without caring one iota for their soul and having compassion for their struggle and for their hurt. And so we have to, yes, stand on truth and call sin, sin, where God's Word calls sin, sin, but we must do a better job with compassion for their eternity. We also, in more recent years, have feared the movement, the agenda, the same-sex attraction that is a conversation in our environment that has normalized such sinful behavior. And, and we fear the movement so much that we have isolated ourselves and become passively silent about what God says. For fear of whatever, lawsuit or being counseled, we have become passively silent, and that is not pleasing to the Lord. We need to understand God is on the throne and He will take care of us as we walk with Him and walk in truth. In even more recent times, what is troubling, not just in the world around us, but in some denominations that claim to be evangelical, is compassion without truth. And in that compassion without truth is that we love everybody and we affirm everybody and, and whoever you are, it doesn't matter how you live, we love you, affirm you, you are welcome here. And that is a growing affirmation. In fact, one statistic most recent I could find was 2019, but from 2002 to 2019, the affirmation of same-sex attraction and sinful homosexual behavior grew from 52% in the world around us to 71%. Here's what the culture is saying to you and I as those who want to stand on God's Word is, that, that if you stand in truth and say this is wrong and sinful behavior, then you hate us. On the other hand, the option is you must affirm us and agree and accept us as we are, even accept us as God made us. I want you to understand that God's Word does not allow us, number one, to hate them, whoever they are. And God's Word does not allow us, number two, to affirm sinful behavior of any kind. 
And so there is another option, and that's the option that we as the body of Christ must do in spite of a world that says, no, you got two options. You either hate or you affirm, and there is no in-between. There is an in-between, and we don't have permission from God to rewrite His Word no matter what the culture says. And the, and the in-between is to love them like Jesus would love them. To engage them in conversation, to engage in relationship, to keep pointing toward truth as we have compassion in our hearts for them, conviction for what is right, and a desire for their greater good as God defines it. The hope for anyone who struggles with sexual attraction in any sinful type of behavior is the Lord Jesus Christ and life in Christ. Same for you and me. Our only hope is Christ. Amen? So as we get ready to read Romans 1, just understand who uh, is writing here. It's a powerful New Testament book all about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, written by probably the greatest missionary we know, the Apostle Paul, probably from Corinth, on his third missionary journey in about A.D. 57. The theme of Romans is the revelation of God's judging and saving righteousness in the gospel of Jesus. God's judging and saving righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's at the cross that we see God judge sin. But at the same time, it's at the cross that we see the mercy of God for sinful mankind. And so as we go to Romans, go ahead and get your Bibles ready. We're just going to read a little bit. Verses 16 and 17, I think, are probably key verses for the theme of all of Romans. I want to read them, and then we'll stand and read our passage together. This is where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by what? Faith. I want to invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. And I'll begin reading in verse 18 and ask that you follow along through 32. I couldn't leave any of it out. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which it was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit, guide our thoughts, give us understanding, give us application, give us truth, and give us grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. If you read and study the book of Romans, you find out that there is absolutely nothing good in us. Anything good that we have ever done is but filthy rags before a holy and a righteous God. And so, dead in our trespasses and sins are we that only grace and mercy of God can save us. And this grace and mercy of God is revealed through His only Son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place, was buried, and rose again. So that the hope that we have is when we surrender our lives over to Jesus, we are no longer controlled by this old sinful nature. The bondage of sin has been broken. But in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit of God who abides within us and enables us to be controlled by His power, His Spirit, and we can walk worthy of the calling with which God's given us. If we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, Romans 10 reminds us, we shall be saved, born again. And then as those who are born again, we live differently. Therefore, we present our bodies back to the Lord as living sacrifices, not conforming to the standards of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may test and approve what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God. And so Paul in the first section of Romans is making a real strong point. These pagan Gentiles are sinners. And you can see all the Jews say, Amen. But then in chapter 2, he starts pointing another finger. And even as Jews, you are sinners in need of a Savior. And so Paul has said that sin has broken what God had created and called very good. Sin has brought in disorder to God's created order. And so before we can really lean into what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1, we have to begin like Jesus did when he was asking Matthew chapter 19 about divorce. 
And Jesus took them back to the very beginning, to the book of beginnings, to Genesis. And he said, in the beginning, it was not so. So when we are trying to understand sexual attraction the way God made it, let's go to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. So go ahead and take your Bibles. Go with me to Genesis chapter 2. If you have your sermon notes, this is going to be number one. As we go to Genesis We're going to see God's design for human sexuality and attraction through His purpose and design for marriage. And so, number one on your notes, God's design, one man, one woman, one lifetime. Simple. That's it. God's design. And so, understanding God's design from the beginning helps us understand God's design for sexual attraction today. These first two chapters of Genesis create a framework for understanding God's design for sexuality and sexuality in marriage. Genesis 1 and 2 present God's uncorrupted, undistorted, original design for humanity. This is when God created, and it was good. In fact, God created, and He said it is very good. It's before Genesis chapter 3 where sin entered in. So in God's original design for humanity, He created them in two complementary forms that we refer to today as sexes, male and female, man and woman. Genesis 2, if you're there, look back at Genesis 1, verse 27. Verse 26, let's go back one more. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You kind of heard that language in Romans chapter 1. So Paul was using some creation framework as he was pulling from what God had created. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female He created them. God created humanity this way with a specific design and function in mind. Look at verse 28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every every living thing that moves on the earth. And so without the complementary design of male and female and without the function of male and female together, the human race would not exist right now. We would no longer procreate. God created that way for a purpose. So Genesis 1 1 explains that God created Adam and Eve in his own image and tasked them with the responsibility to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's not rocket science, and I'm no engineer, but that's pretty clear to me. It takes male and female in order to accomplish what God commanded to be fruitful and multiply. God saw it in Genesis 1 and 2. It was good. It was very good. Genesis 2.18, God says it's not good that uh, Adam should be alone. 
After creating the animals and Adam being a part of naming them, there was not a helper found comparable to him. So God caused a deep sleep to fall over the man, Adam, and created the first woman out of Adam's own flesh. Verses 21 and 22 of Genesis 2. When God presents Eve to Adam, the female to male, the man responds with some excitement. This is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called what? Woman, because she was taken out of man. So immediately after God presented Eve to Adam, female to male, uh, Adam's excitement and attraction toward her and pronouncement, she shall be called woman. Look at verse 24 of chapter 2 of what God says next. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. God's design. One man, one woman for a lifetime. And although some may be called to a life of singleness, we recognize that, and that is also a gift from God. This verse reveals God's design and plan for male and female and life together. God's original design for male and female includes the sexual potential for procreating within the marriage relationship. Our bodies are created for reproduction in the fathering and mothering kind of way. Even if that potential is never realized and marriage or having children is not part of an individual's life experience, one's bodily formation is nevertheless the product of a male-female union and points toward God's design for marriage. We need to know that. But we not only need to know it, we need to know where it is in Scripture. And not only do we need to know it and know where it is in Scripture, we need to be able to take our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to God's Word and say, this is how God created God's creation design of male and female is neither accidental nor incidental. When it comes to sexuality, whoever designs it has the authority to define it. And God designed it, and he does have the first word about it. And whether we believe it or not, this God is going to have the last word about it. God's definition of marriage is between, maybe we need to add some adjectives these days, one biological male to one biological female, and there should be no sex outside of that marriage covenant, either before or in addition to. Thus, God's purpose for marriage prohibits sexual immorality of any kind, including same-sex marriage. And so, please, please don't push back and say, this is not relevant to me. Sexual immorality of any kind is a big umbrella that impacts a lot of people that sit in church every single week. And so be careful that that we are not in a heterosexual relationship committing sexual immorality. Number two, y'all okay? So you got to go to God's original design, the created order, before we can understand number two, sin's disorder. How sin distorts and corrupts. So God's truth is exchanged for lies. We read that. Don't miss this. We today live in a post-Genesis 3 world, which means we suffer from corruption and the distortion of sin. 
what God created originally and called very good is distorted. It's corrupted by sin. Sin corrupts and distorts what God created in the beginning. Did I say that enough for you to get it? All right. One of the primary reasons Jesus came to earth was to reverse the curse of sin and to help us overcome its effects, one of which is distortion and confusion about marriage and sexuality and how needed this conversation is today. Thus, sinners rebel against God's beautiful design for sexuality. God created, sin distorts. We rebel against what God created and said, this is the way it was meant to be, and this is when it's very good, and so we distort it. How do we distort it? Hang on, keep listening. Some rebel against the notion that sex should be restricted for the marriage covenant. In other words, they're dating and they're sexually active. That is sexual immorality that is prohibited by God's Word. And so we don't need to get on our high horse and point toward those who have same sexual attraction or homosexual behavior if we are living in sin ourselves. So be careful. That's a way that is we are rebelling today. Others wish to redefine marriage covenant and say that it's no longer permanent. We have no-fault divorces today. They've been around for a long time because we have bailed out, sometimes not in the way that we should have. Still others wish to redefine the marriage covenant so that it might include multiple sexual partners. It could be called adultery. It could be called polyamory. It could be called polygamy. It could be called homosexuality. All of these are departures from and distortions of God's original design of sexuality. Such departure can only be labeled as sinful rebellion against what our Creator created in the beginning. So how do we respond to a culture? Even a culture where some professing Christians spread false teaching claiming that the Bible itself permits sexual immorality of any kind, but particularly same-sex attraction. And they're out there. They're not far away from us. There are churches that will preach that we can live in sin and be accepted by God. Be careful with that. So what does the Bible say? That's where we begin. That's how we counter the culture. That's how we stand in truth. That's how we also stand in grace and compassion and conviction. Write down Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. Oh, that's Old Testament stuff. Yeah, it is. It talks about the law. We can't ignore it, but the New Testament is going to back it up. These are two prominent passages that are very blunt about same-sex relationships. Leviticus 18.22, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, just says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Chapter 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a male... As he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. That shall surely be put to death. <clears throat> Their blood shall be upon them. Abomination, that which is detestable. The context, to be fair, includes broad prohibitions against other forms of sexual sin, like incest, bestiality, adultery, or forcing a daughter into prostitution. But the scriptures are really clear. They're not foggy that men are prohibited from having sex with men. Let's go to back to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 1, where we started as we were reading. 
Paul said in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness for those who suppress truth in unrighteous living and unrighteousness. Truth is suppressed by unrighteous living. By the way, truth cannot be changed. It can only be stifled. What is true is true. God's Word is truth, and it's true no matter what the culture says. It's true no matter what the courts may say. It's true no matter what family members may say if they counter this. But we need to understand what happens when sin distorts is truth is, is suppressed by sinful, unrighteous living. The foundational problem is not same-sex attraction or homosexual behavior. The problem here is idolatry. As we see this, idolatry manifests itself in many sinful expressions as God delivers us over to sinful living. Paul uses allusions of that creation narrative in his wording to frame the discussion about our rebellion against God's original design. Paul argues that corruption of sexuality through the rejection of the male-female complementary roles that's symptomatic of a departure from God's purpose of creation. This type of behavior is distorted from what God created, and it is a departure from what God said is good. The repetition of the word exchange, you probably heard it, reveals an undeniable connection between sinful rebellion and consequences of sin. In fact, in verse 23, man, sinful man exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Thus, verse 24, God gave them up to uncleanness in their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Part of the wrath of God being real, uh, revealed today is God just removing his restraint and allowing us to hang ourselves in our own sinful behavior. It's almost like being at the top of the hill and riding a bicycle without a chain downhill. You're going to go faster and faster and faster until you crash. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Then God gave them up to the vile passion, same-sex sinful rebellion. Verse 26, they exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Understand here that, which, that phrase against nature refers to what God designed in the beginning. What is natural and what is in nature is how God designed it from the get-go. God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things that are not fitting. So by God's design, sexual attraction exists to draw men and women together in the union of marriage. That's what he ordains. The sin of homosexuality is the consequence of humanity suppressing the truth, and it's an indicator of the wrath of God being revealed today. Evidence of his present-day wrath. God gave them over. It's a scary thing to look into our culture, our families, and see how the enemy has deceived and misled and normalized sinful behavior among us. The New Testament contains two more passages that I think address homosexuality head on. One is probably familiar, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
or chapter 6, verse 9. This is one a lot of people often go to and quote, but you need to be careful because there's a whole lot of sin identified in this passage. In fact, that category of sin is so vast, there's probably not a sin in there that we have not committed. And so before we use it as a proof text against same-sex attraction only, we need to realize and let the Holy Spirit of God search our lives and make sure there's not a log in our eye of sexual immorality before we talk with somebody else about sexual sin. Verse 9, Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, broad term, including all sexual immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then notice verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Understand, when Paul listed that, he is listing a pattern of of life behavior that is of unbelievers. And he's talking to those believers in Corinth. He said, this is what you used to be, not what you are. So I cannot be a practicing homosexual living in a sinful lifestyle and be a born-again believer. I don't think it's unclear. We are commanded, all of us, to flee sexual immorality and live a life that produces the fruit of repentance from the old life of sin. That's the calling. When we engage people that are not like us, when we have a heart that is heavy for people who are struggling and confused with this same-sex attraction or maybe homosexual lifestyle, we need to come along them and love them and pray for them and care for them, but keep pointing them to what God said, their Creator, their Heavenly Father, and, and the greatest good that He desires for them and how they can obtain that. Romans 1 says this sin is against God's design. 1 Corinthians 6 says this is incompatible with inheriting the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 1, I'm not going to read it, but 1 Timothy 1 uh, verses 9 and 10, it says these sins are against the law of God. And so we need to understand sin Sin's disorder, sin corrupts, sin distorts. We're living in a post-Genesis 3 world to where things are corrupted and distorted. And part of what is corrupted and distorted is the institution of marriage and is human sexuality and attractions that we get all messed up. Anytime our attractions are enticed to go against what God says, then they become sinful. Number three, God's decree. Wow, where did time go? Those who practice such things deserve death. By the way, can I just say, Paul said in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then chapter 6, verse 23, you remember what he says? For the wages penalty of sin is... For those who did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind. Verse 28, this expression refers not only to the debased sexual activity outlined in verses 24 through 28, but also to 21 other sinful qualities. 
Before we get on our high horse, oh dear Holy Spirit of God, examine my life. Make sure I am not trespassing, rebelling against your created order by sinful living in my own heart. The debased mind means it's a mind that cannot form right judgments. It's distorted. It's confused. That's the world that we live in. Produces a host of unrighteous thoughts, attitudes, actions. And the Bible says the sentence of such living, such thinking is death. The penalty of sin is death. Paul is not blaming that everyone is guilty of every sin mentioned in Romans chapter 1. Rather, he is arguing that everyone is guilty of these sorts of sins and every one of us is in need of a Savior. They know God's righteous decree. Look at verse 32. It's scary. They know God's righteous decree. And yet they practice such things. That's presumptuous, high-handedness. They not only do them, but here's where it really gets to the lowest of the low. They give approval of those who practice them. Not only does the world around us want us to affirm sexual attraction that is against God's word and his creation, they want us to celebrate it. And so affirm and celebrate in dear church, dear people of God, we can neither affirm nor celebrate a life of sin. Willful rejection of divine revelation hardens the heart every time to the point where, where the rebel takes delight in the sinfulness of others. At this point, wickedness has sunk to the lowest level. How great the fall. Do you sense the heaviness of the world around us? Not only do we know the righteousness of God and our world around us refuse to live by that, but we practice the things that are not according to God's word, and then we applaud those who do the same. Go to chapter 2, verse 4. It's where we'll end. Paul says, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering? God is good. He knew we needed a Savior. He sent the Savior. He gave us rescue in Christ. He's forbearing in our rebellion. He loved us while we were yet sinners. He's long-suffering, not knowing that, Paul said, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. And so what is God's desire as we hear truth, as we understand as sinners we need a Savior that know the goodness of God, the God who loved us while we were yet sinners and demonstrated that love through the gift of Jesus who demonstrated it on the cross by dying in our place and shedding his blood. Understand, it's that goodness of God that ought to lead us to repentance. We've got to come to the place that we really believe that God loves us. And that he really desires that which is best for us. And if there's any command, do not do, it is for our own good to keep us from destroying ourselves. To keep us from being miserable and sad and unfulfilled and unhappy and searching to try to find our identity. Our identity should be found in Christ. It's what God wants. The biblical principle that is clear throughout Romans 1 is that where there is obedience to all that God reveals, 
When we live a life of obedience, there is health and flourishing. I'm not saying there's no sickness in that life or no sorrow, no pain. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it is a spiritually healthy, flourishing life that has fulfillment. Where there is disobedience and rebellion, there's nothing but hurt and confusion. Statistics are telling us some of the saddest and most unhappy people on the face of the earth are those who are identifying with LGBTQ. In 2021, nearly 70% of LGBTQ plus students experience persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. When you try to find life outside of the way that God has prescribed it, it's not going to bring you happiness. Here is the unnerving trend. The rise of those in our culture identifying as LGBTQ+, rose from 3.5% to 7.1% in 2021. But here's the devastating thing. The Gen Z, those born from 97 to 2012, currently in 2021, 20.8% of Gen Z identified as LGBTQ. It's real. They're confused. They're hurting. They're looking and they're searching. And God's given us a lifeline of truth. Not so that we can be condemning, not so that we can stiff arm them, not so that we can preach to them, but so that we can come alongside of them with love, in compassion, speak truth in grace. Does God cause people to have homosexual attractions such as one can say, I was born this way? That's what we hear in the world, right? There's no adequate scientific evidence that exists that suggests an individual can be born with same-sex attraction, same-sex orientation. Nevertheless, the same-sex attraction can come very early in life. Know this, it is against God's nature to cause anyone to sin. He cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with it, James 1.13. Sinful humans have all sorts of desires that come about by nature and nurture. And the world is doing a far better job to nurture the minds of our next generation than we are. Pinging every day with the lie of the world that this is normal behavior, this was how you were born. So if you have these tendencies, just identify as to how God created you. They're confused. Some of these attractions are appropriate. Many others are not. So while an attraction may feel natural that I didn't ask for it, it just happens, in the sense of somewhat common to my experience in a fallen world, we cannot therefore determine that just because you have a tendency to be attracted towards someone of the same sex, that it's valid. We have a lot of attractions that are not good for us. Can I be a believer and still struggle with same-sex attraction? Yes. You okay? We need to know this because there are believers who do struggle with same-sex attraction. They didn't ask for it. They really don't know where it come from. They don't know how to wrestle with it. And caution here, we are talking about a struggle with attraction and not a sinful lifestyle. It's like a temptation. Can a heterosexual man lust in his mind and heart? Did he ask for it? 
They say, I'm going to get up today, and I'm going to go out, and every woman I look at, I'm going to lust and, and, and just fantasize about how I can be with her intimately. No. That's not how temptation happens. That's not, that's not how lust pops in your mind. In the same way, that person that struggles with same-sex attraction may not know where it comes from, but it's there. But then we have to deal with it. Temptation by itself is not sinful. It's how we respond to it. Same-sex attraction as a temptation is not sinful. It's how we respond to it. Every Christian wrestles with thoughts we can't quite understand and feelings that we didn't want. Thus, this is not a homosexual problem. It is a human problem who have been distorted and corrupted in sin. Some of these struggles could be lifelong. In other words, we may be born again, and we may beg God to take this attraction away, and He never does. So we battle with that attraction while we're here on earth. To live in the parameter of God's word and truth. It's the same way with men and women who struggle with lust toward the opposite sex. It may be a lifelong struggle, but God's given us boundaries to live by. Keep in mind that God sometimes allows limps and thorns for our good and his glory. Consider Paul. Don't know what his thorn in the flesh was, but it kept him dependent upon the God who could when he couldn't. Bottom line, verse 32 reminds us, God's people ought not to engage in unrighteousness, including homosexual behavior or giving approval of those who do. So in the days ahead, the church will be forced to think through these issues more and more and more. You're not going to get around it. We will have tremendous opportunity to be slow to speak, quick to listen, to keep our Bibles open and our hearts as well. And to speak the truth in love and show truth in grace to those who are struggling. Every one of us will have to decide for ourselves, am I going to allow the world around me to override the word that God has given me? Or am I going to allow the word of God to override the lies of the world around me? So how do we respond today? Where the world has lost its mind, dear church, we must keep our mind. The world has lost its memory of biblical truth. And the world has lost a mindset of biblical truth. Not because we are so wise in and of ourselves, but because God has granted us through His Spirit divine revelation of what He said. We today need to respond according to our core values. Truth not lies, rescue, not neglect, compassion, together, not alone, community, generosity, not greed, investing in others, transform, not conform, renewal of the minds. Before I pray, just some responses from some groups that I've thought about. To those with right belief, but have had a hard time having compassion for those who live this way, my appeal to you is pray that God would give you grace as well as truth. To those casually affirming through compassion without truth, pray that God will give you courage to stand in truth and yet be gracious. To those struggling with errant or sinful sexual attraction, 
Look to Jesus. Look to God's design. If you're a child of God, look to the Spirit of God within you to enable you to do what you cannot do on your own. Seek first that relationship with Jesus. Run to Him. Look to Him. To parents and grandparents and friends struggling to relate in truth and grace with those in our family. Pray. 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 Love them. Point them persistently to truth. But in love and with grace. Parents who have young children, next generation children, grandparents, have the conversation. Take them to God's original design so they know it. Show them the dangers of sin's disorder and where it leads. Have the conversation. We're going to try to help resource you, and beginning tomorrow, resources for this sermon will be up and running on the website. But right now, we just throw out a bunch of topics to you. But we want you to know you're not alone. Boy, I preached a long time today. I'm sorry. But it is a deep, deep subject. I want to pray for us, but there's some responses that we need to make. And there's some grace that we need to extend, but there's some truth that we need to proclaim. God's called us to live with a different kind of righteousness, to be salt and light as we go. And that's my prayer for me, that's my prayer for you as we go.